Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Larry Burbacher. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. Take your Bibles out and turn to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, and we'll begin with verse 18 this morning. Happy Mother's Day again. We're going to look at a mother this morning and a father, Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is one of the oldest mothers you will ever find to give birth, the oldest by far, 90 years of age. She had her very first son, a boy, Isaac. Let's stand together as we look at God's Word this morning. And we look at this incredible story about hope, about faith. We are studying Romans together. We're journeying together with the Apostle Paul. This book is the pinnacle in the New Testament. It lays down our theology of justification by faith alone. Works can't save anybody. It's only by faith that we are saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this chapter is an incredible chapter as he breaks it down and lays it down for us. So let's start together with verse number Uh, 18 today. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in the faith. And gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Hallelujah. God's a powerful God. And if he promised in his word, it will come to pass. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you. I pray this morning that you would faith would arise in the hearts of every person here today. Anoint me as I preach your word. I need your help. I ask it in your mighty name, amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. How many have ever heard the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves? Let me see your hand. Let me tell you, that is not true. It's not a a true phrase at all. In fact, the Jews spent their life trying to achieve the righteousness of God. And they thought if we kept the laws and we did enough good stuff and we followed all the riches and we made all the sacrifices and we were circumcised that somehow God would help us. Listen, you are saved by grace through faith alone. And somehow along the way, even the church, we get this idea that I come to Christ through grace and I receive his mercy, but after I'm saved, then i got to work real hard to keep my salvation. And we start out with grace, but we immediately begin in our mind, we make this subtle shift, and we shift over to a works kind of righteousness, and we have this mentality, God helps those who help themselves. Paul is going to debunk that today. Justified by faith alone. He's going to give us three examples from the Word of God that shows we're justified by faith alone. The first is the example of of Father Abraham. Jump down to verse number one, if you would. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul goes all the way back to Abraham, doesn't talk about the kings, doesn't talk about the judges, he, he doesn't talk about even Moses. He's going back to Abraham because Abraham is the progenitor of the Jewish nation. It all begins with Father Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and it's through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Jewish nation is going to be born. And so he goes back to the very beginning to the roots of itself. And in, and in Genesis, excuse me, in chapter 3, it says, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He is quoting from Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 6. Why is Abraham so significant? Because God chose Abraham, through, it was through him and through the Jewish nation that the plan of redemption would begin to unfold. Now I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to jump back and forth a little bit this morning between Genesis and Romans, because I want you to understand this today. It's a remarkable story of Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now the name Abram means exalted father. So when he's born, he gets this name Abram, exalted father. And yet the ironic twist is he marries Sarah. And Sarah was good looking, and they're attracted to each other. They get married, uh, and yet Sarah is unable to have children. She's unable to conceive. And so we have Abraham, exalted father, marrying Sarah, who is unable to bear children. And yet, nevertheless, Abraham, the Bible says, believes the promises of God. And God gives him this incredible promise in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, first of all, you're going to have to leave your family, leave your friends, uh, get out of this idol-worshiping nation, and go to a land that I am going to show you. Now, if I'm writing the story, I, I might say, Abraham, if you obey me and you get to the promised land, then I'm going to show you my great power and I'm going to bless you and you're going to settle in the land. You're going to have a whole lot of kids uh, and they're all going to be little Abrams uh, and they're going to go around and exalt you as their father and because of your obedience. But that's not what God did. You see, God is wiser than we are. We like this obedience in exchange for blessing arrangement. And so if I obey, God blesses, it all works out. Therefore, I can take credit for the blessings of God because after all, I was so noble to obey God. But the one true God is much wiser than I am. He wants to form a relationship with Abram and so Abram waits. And God is going to begin to cultivate this relationship because relationships take time and they take intimacy and they take trust. And so God is about to start Abram on a journey of faith that's going to grow progressively the older he gets. You see, we want our blessing now. We want God to answer our prayers right now. 
when I want it, when I need it. God, you come through, uh, and if I do this and this and this, if I follow these four steps, then somehow, God, you've got to bless me, and God is all about relationships. He wants us to know him and trust in him and draw close to him. The Bible says Abraham believed the promise, but the problem is he's not getting any younger. He's now, when the promise is first given, he's 75 years old. And so God says, you're going to have a a great nation. I'm going to multiply your seed. Sarah's 10 years younger. She is now 65 years old. Now, fast forward, nothing happens for those next 14 years, and so or next 10 years. Now, Abraham is now 85 years old. Sarah is long past menopause. The hot flashes are over. Thermostat wars are over. It's all done. It's already happened. It's, she's past all of that. She is past her prime. Now turn, if you would, to Genesis 15. He's going to give this promise three different times. Look at verse number five and six. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him for Righteousness. Now, that's the same thing I read to you in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 3. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, Abraham, when he's looking around, he's looking at Sarah, 75 years old now, Abraham, 85 years old. It's not going to happen in his mind. There's, There's no way possible she can have a child. And so he thinks, maybe my servant Eliezer is the one who's going to, be the father of all the nations. But Abraham had, or God had told Abraham he would come from your loins. But Abraham reasoned himself from my loins, maybe he'll use another lady, a surrogate by the name of Hagar. Maybe it's through Hagar I will have children just as long as he comes from my loins. Now how many know when we try to work out in the flesh what God wants to do in the supernatural, we make a mess of things? And they had uh, Ishmael, and ever since then, there's been this great division in the household. It starts in Abraham with Ishmael and Isaac, and it goes all the way down till now we have a mess in the Middle East. He goes on to say, but Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. How many have credit cards in here? Let me see your hand. How many at times wish you didn't have a credit card? Let me see this hand. You know how they work. They they show all the fees in there, all the debits, all the charges you made. But then every once in a while, you'll see this credit on your credit card. You take something back, you get a credit, and and it's going to go against your outstanding balance. And we rejoice about the credits. The Bible says God looks at Abraham's faith, and immediately he credits his account as righteous. Not because anything Abraham had done, it is simply a credit given to him by God. It's a gift of God. Now look at verses 4 and 5 of Romans. 4 and 5. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift. When you work, you get paid, you're owed that money. But as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, he's, he's differentiating between 
wages and gifts. A gift is something somebody just gives you. On your birthday, you were just born. Here's gifts. Didn't do a thing to earn it. Couldn't work for it. Couldn't merit it in any way, shape, or form. But in your, somebody's goodness, because they loved you, they just give you a gift. Wages is something you work for and you earned. Now to further show how remarkable this gift is, it says, by this gift he justifies the wicked. He purposely puts that in there. Paul writes that in there to say, you're saved not because of your good works, because the bottom line is we all stink. We don't deserve anything. But God justifies the wicked. He looks at us, and the moment I put my faith and trust in God, he credits my account as righteous. And I stand pure before God, bathed and clothed in his righteousness. It is absolutely a gift. And then to further explain this, he gives us our second illustration, and that's of David. And he purposely puts David after verse number five, because David had a foray into wickedness. Remember the story? David's the king of all of Israel. David has everything, everybody he could want in the kingdom, uh, but he sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. And the Bible says he desires her and he brings her into himself as the king. Everyone else has gone off to war. Her husband has gone off to war, Uriah the Hittite. And you know the story. David has an affair, a uh, fornication, adultery with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. Now that complicates the whole story. If she wasn't pregnant, she'd go back home. No one would know the difference. No one would be the wiser. He thinks he would have gotten away with it. But she becomes pregnant. And so now he has a real dilemma on his hand. And so to cover up the pregnancy, he has her husband sent to the front lines of battle. And he is killed in battle. All the troops pull back. Uriah is out there by himself. And so in effect, David murders Uriah the Hittite. And he thinks he's gotten away from it when Nathan comes in and points his finger at his face and says, thou art the man. And he tells him a story. He says, you're the one that is guilty of this sin. And David cries out. And in this moment, he understands that he has blown it. He has sinned. He doesn't deserve any mercy. He doesn't deserve grace. And so we have out of that Psalm 32. Now, here's what happens. Look at Romans chapter 4. Paul is going to quote from Psalm 32. The reason he does this is he is using David as an illustration of God who justifies the wicked. God who cleanses the wicked. God who cleanses those who don't deserve it. You see, the Jews might be thinking Abraham's a good guy, and so he deserves to be made righteous. Paul says, no way. Abraham is made righteous because he trusted in God. But lest they be confused at all, he gives you a second illustration, and that's of David. Pick it up with verse number 6. David says the same things when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions, transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him there is not a person saved by works we will never ever be good enough 
We sin. We need God's grace. You can't earn God's grace. You can't merit it. You can never, ever be good enough. So how can I be saved? When I put my trust in God, he comes in and credits my account and says, I look at Larry, righteous. Not because Larry's any good at all, but because God is so good and God is so great and God is so gracious. He credits us with righteousness. Now he gives the example of Abraham. He gives the example of David. Now he's going to go even further and say anybody who puts their faith in God will be credited as righteous in God's eyes. Now why does he say that? Because at this point, the Jews are probably thinking, great, you've picked a couple wonderful Jews as examples. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. David, our greatest king. But now he's going to say something radical. Look at verse number, uh, let's just pick it up at verse 12 for time's sake this morning. Verse number 12. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, let me, let me give you the backdrop right here. The Jews are saying our covenant relationship with God is based on circumcision. Therefore, if I am circumcised, I receive God's faith. But Paul's going to go back and says, wait a minute, recheck the timeline. God told Abraham that faith was credited to him or righteousness was credited to him in Genesis chapter 15. He is not circumcised until Genesis chapter 17. It was credited to him as faith long before he was ever circumcised. What does that mean? He is not just the father of the Jews only, but he is the father of everybody who puts their faith in God. So listen, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say Father Abraham and be perfectly accurate because he's the father of all who have faith. Circumcision. Why circumcised? Circumcision has nothing to do to save a man or credit him with righteousness. It was a seal that God was given him to show that he was already righteous. Much like when we baptize somebody in water, and if you weren't here last week, you missed a treat. We baptized 50 plus in water, and we were celebrating, and we had a time last week. But let me make it very clear, water baptism won't save anybody. It is the seal that I have already been made righteous by God. It's a testimony to what God has already done in my heart. And if we're not careful, the mistake is if I'm baptized, if I take communion, if I come to church, if I pay my tithes, if I do good works, if I do all these kinds of things, then God will have to take me in. He says, no, you've got to be credited as righteous first. These other things follow. It becomes the seal of my salvation. It shows everybody that I have been born again. What is a seal? It talks about a seal in verse number 11. A seal is something you stamp upon a document to show it's authentic. 
They ask for the original papers, and it's got to have that raised seal on it. If it doesn't have the raised seal, they won't accept your paperwork, your notary, your power of attorney, whatever it might be. It has to have that raised stamp or that raised seal on it. And so what it is was circumcision for the Jews was that seal that they were in a covenant relationship with God. It sealed that relationship. So it is for us, water baptism becomes that seal that I am now in the family of God, but that will not save me. We're saved by faith through grace alone. And so he gives that. And then jump down to verse number 16. He describes this journey of faith. And he, and he makes a statement. He says, uh, let me read verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Look at verse number 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of of us all. Faith. Everybody say that word, faith. Now here's the problem. We don't understand faith in our, in our modern terminology. We get it messed up. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We have this misunderstanding. Mark Twain had a character. He was called Puddinhead Wilson. That was before my time. Anybody remember Puddinhead Wilson, Mark Twain? Anybody read that stuff? But he came up with a phrase that we have we have taken today almost to be a definition of faith. He says, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. And so today we've translated that to mean faith is believing something for which there is no proof. So we think faith, to have faith in God, we've got to shut our brains off. We've got to take this huge, giant, Leap of faith. You've heard that expression. Take a leap of faith. Almost like as believers, we put our mind on hold. It goes back to the 13th century and Thomas Aquinas. And there was a teaching that came out of that age that said there's a whole spiritual realm out here and there's a whole physical realm out here and the two shall never meet. Up until the 13th century, Everybody believed in the world pretty much uh, that the world came into being uh, by physics and the power of God, and those two things worked together. It was all about God and the supernatural, and they didn't divide out the natural from the supernatural or the physical from the spiritual, but something began to happen in this age of reason that said there's a spiritual world and there's a physical world, and the two shall not meet. So how do you bridge the gap between the spiritual and the physical? Somehow in our minds we have to take this giant leap of faith, right? The tragic division between the spiritual and physical became an ugly divorce, and so now the two can never share the same intellectual house. You can't have spiritual realities and physical realities at the same time because they are two opposite, totally different worlds. Fast forward to the 20th century, existentialism, that, that, that says the gap cannot be bridged intellectually, so science and logic have no place and cannot lead to spiritual realities. 
And so to cross this gap, we have to take this blind leap of faith to trust in something when there is nothing there. And so we're like this definition, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Now, as you look at verse number 18, it says, Abraham hoping against hope. It's almost like he's believing something he knows ain't so. It almost supports that doctrine of taking a leap of faith, putting our mind aside, putting our brains aside. But Paul is using this phrase to distinguish natural hope from supernatural hope. And in God, we can have a supernatural hope. Abraham placed his hope in the supernatural power of God because in the natural, it was hopeless. But it was reasonable for Abraham to believe in the supernatural power of God because he had seen God in action before. He was basing his faith on the track record of who God is and the miracle-working power of God. God's faithfulness allowed Abraham to trust him without Abraham knowing the specific details of how God will work it all out. Biblical faith is not irrational. Faith often transcends proof, but we don't blindly shut off our brains. Now, if it helps you to understand this concept of faith, maybe you want to insert the word trust in there. Trust in faith. Exercising faith is to put your trust in someone or something. Now, let me see if I can illustrate it for you to boil this down. Every time you step on an airplane, you're not sure that airplane's going to make it to the other side. You don't know if it's going to land. You don't know if you're going to get off that plane. Some of you still won't fly today because of that. But there was a reasonable expectation that the aircraft was designed and built correctly and that the pilots are competent and know what they're doing. And so because you have an expectation that you will land safely, you board the plane anyway. Right? Let me give you another illustration. You exercise faith every time you allow a doctor to operate on your body. You don't know if when you, they put you under anesthesia, you're going to wake up or not. But you have faith on the track record of your doctor that he's done this surgery before. He knows what he's doing, and it's going to work out okay. And so you go ahead and have the surgery anyway. In time, experience reinforces the decision to trust. Faith or trust allows us to move beyond what we can see in order to experience what you cannot yet see. But our faith has a foundation. It's not a blind leap of faith. I don't sacrifice my intellect to believe in God. There is proof of God all around. I see God's hand in creation. I see it in life. I see it in everything. I see it in his blessings. I see it in his providence. I see it in the law. I see the hand of God all around me. I've seen the miracles before. I've seen transformed lives before. And when God did it before, I believe he can do it again. So here's what the Bible says about Abraham's faith. He had two very distinct things he based his faith upon. Number one, it says he trusted in the promises of God. God has given promises. 
Abraham, uh, go back to verse 16 again. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. And the God who gives life to the dead calls things that are not as though they were. Now Abraham has been taken on a progression of faith all along the way. It's been a journey. The first part of the journey is get up and leap, move and go to a land that I'm going to show you, a land you do not know. And then God takes Abraham, and he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means uh, exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude, or father of a nation. His wife's name was Sarai. Sarai means contentious. He didn't know that. She's and you see a little bit times with her and Hagar, she gets very contentious. She gets contentious with Abraham. But her name is changed from Sarai to Sarah, which means princess. So you have the father of the multitude, and you have Princess Sarah. And those two are together. You get to the time now when Abraham is now 99 years old. And so for the third time, God comes and he reiterates the covenant, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Only the Bible says this time Abraham laughed. He thought that was hilarious. He laughs, Sarah laughs, and, and, and they're laughing. Abraham laughed. Turn to Genesis 21. As incredulous as that laughter was at their age, you see, in the natural, in the natural, they're 99, 89 years old. In the natural, they'd never seen God do this before. In the natural, they would become a laughingstock. In the natural, Sarah could die in giving childbirth at this time. In the natural, there are all kinds of reasons for not believing and not trusting in God. And so they laughed. But look if you were to verse number six and seven. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The laughter of ridicule turns into the laughter of joy. In the name of Isaac, which means laughter itself. First Genesis 18 and verse 14, the Bible says anything too hard for God. The only thing that Abraham could hang on to is, God, you made a promise, and I'm going to believe in you, and I'm going to trust in you. In the natural, it looks impossible, but God, you're supernatural. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years, and we wonder as we look at it, why wait 25 years? Because the Lord wanted Abraham and his descendants to understand that the covenant is by divine origin, not by man's power. God's going to get all the glory. If he's 75 and she's 65, you might look and say, boy, Abraham, you still got it. But when you're 99 and 89, you know they don't have it. It's got to be God. 
And so God waits to show that the power is ultimately in him. And the second reason, all this time, he is cultivating and working on Abraham and Sarah's faith. And all the time, they are growing in their awareness of who God is and his limitless power. Look at verse number 18. It says, they did not waver. Go back to Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations, just as said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in the faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver, look at that word, through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in the faith and gave glory to God. The word waver there literally means to judge through. It's like a judge who sits in a court of law He weighs all the evidence, and then he makes his decision to judge through. The Bible says Abraham did not waver. He did not judge through. When you weighed the evidence, it was an impossibility. But Abraham didn't do that. It wasn't based on what he could see in the natural. It was based on the supernatural power of Almighty God. And Abraham believed that God had power to bring dead things back to life. Now that's the basic premise of everything in our faith today, guys. You've got to believe that God is able to resurrect the dead. And we see it used in just a few different ways here. First of all, it says Abraham was as good as dead. And Sarah's womb was dead. And yet I serve a powerful God who's able to bring the dead back to life. Now listen, the story doesn't end here. Because several years later, about 13, 14 years later, God says, I want you to take your son, Isaac, your only son. I want you to take him up on a mountain. I want you to kill, I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, the Bible says, went believing. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. You're going to see this analogy again of raising the dead back to life. And by faith, Abraham, when God tested him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, who would receive the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said, it will be through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham reckoned that God could raise dead things back to life again. Why did he know that? Because if he could take his dead body and bring life out of that, he is also able to take my son. He will keep his promise because it's through him all the nations are going to be blessed. There's going to be a great, great multitude. It's through him that the promise will be fulfilled. Therefore, based on past experience, I believe God is even able to raise Isaac up from the dead. And when he took that knife, had he killed him, he believed with all his heart, Isaac would be raised again. He didn't have to do that. There was a ram caught in a thicket. And God himself provided the sacrifice. And figuratively speaking, Isaac came off of that altar as a living sacrifice. Raised again. We all obtain righteousness in the very same way through faith. Abraham's faith is that God will keep his promise and God is a powerful God 
who's able to raise the dead back to life. Now listen, I want to finish up this chapter. It's the very same way you come to faith. You've got to believe God's able to raise the dead back to life. Who are we talking about? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes the basis of our faith. Verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteous. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now he switches from Abraham's body. Now he switches from Isaac on the altar. Now he says, all of us come into righteousness in the very same way, believing that God has the power to raise dead back to life again. How do we experience that? By believing that Jesus Christ brought his only, God raised his only begotten son back from death to life. He was delivered over for death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Now, if we'll believe that way, God will do something in us. He'll take this dead spirit, dead heart, dead life, dead in trespasses of sins, and raise us back to life as well and give us brand new life in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that because Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, he rose again for my justification. Uh, And because he rose again, I am justified. Every sin is gone. It's taken away. And now he comes in and credits my account righteous. Because it's a gift. And I couldn't earn it. And God loves me. Justification for sins in human terms is impossible. We cannot ever justify ourselves. But the promise of God and the power of God make all things possible. And no matter what you may have done, God is able to save you. Hallelujah. Now, I want to ask you a question, and we're going to pray in just a moment. How big is your God? How big is your God? Do you really believe God is able to resurrect the dead? How big is your God? Are you tossed and turned by the waves of circumstances and chaos? Or do you understand that even in the midst of the waves and the storm, God is still in control and God will fulfill his word in me? Do you accept the finality of impossibilities? Or do you say, God, you have the final word, and nothing's impossible with God? When you pray, do you shy away from making big requests? God, I don't know if you can handle this one or not. Really, too big. Or do you really believe that God is not only able, but he is willing to act supernaturally on your behalf? that he's able to do what may be impossible in the natural, but I serve a powerful, supernatural God. The size of your God matters and has everything to do with the answer. Who is directing your future? Do you serve a puny God with no imagination and little power? Or an infinitely creative, immeasurably powerful, immeasurably gigantic God? who is able to bring dead things back to life. Hallelujah. Where's your faith today? I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to pray. We're going to open up these altars. 
Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Everyone standing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.